One of the rhythms we have here at Grace City of the Northeast is at the beginning of the year, we have to take a few Sundays and we have a series of messages to give kind of a big picture of some eternal truths that we return to again and again. Like, what is the mission of the church? Why do we exist? What are we here for? What should we, we be doing? We reflect on times and goals and what God will do in our church body in the upcoming year. And we also return to this foundational truth that we're going to talk about today on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, that every life from conception to natural death is sacred because it has been given life by God and is made in his image and in his likeness. So I call this a foundational truth. Foundational kind of meaning like ground level the bottom, what you build on top of. Because if we get it wrong, there are so many other things we get wrong as well. If we believe that some lives are more valuable than others, then we begin to think that mistreatment of certain people is not so bad. Underneath racism and prejudice and terrorism and mass shootings is a distorted belief that not all lives are equally valuable or that there is nothing sacred about human life or some lives are expendable. You see, a foundational understanding has ripple effects into our choices and the things that we believe. So to to kind of just step back from terrorism, which is like a heavy topic, and talk about something else um, for a moment to describe how important a foundation is, um, the Phillies are a very frustrating team to care about and to follow. Um, They lack a good foundation as a team, which... It's baffling because for the past four years, we've had very exciting off-seasons. We've signed big free agents. We go into the preseason thinking this will be the year we go to the playoffs, maybe even more. We have so much talent. What could go wrong? And at the end of the year, every year for the last four years, the Phillies are completely average. They have just as many wins as they have losses. Last year, they had the National League MVP, who's voted the best position player in the National League. They had the runner-up Cy Young award winner as a pitcher, the second best rated pitcher, and still as many losses as wins. And what winning teams would tell you is you can't just sign, unless you're the Marlins, you can't just sign players and win a championship. (laughs) Uh, The Phillies spend money on superstars, but they don't have talent they're bringing up through their farm system to fill all the positions around them. Good teams will tell you, you need a foundation, and then you're bringing stars around the foundation. Understanding human life, being in the image of God, is something God's revealed to us from the beginning and is revealed as a foundational truth. In the creation account in Genesis 1, we're told, so God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this is where God begins when revealing who he is and who we are in relation to him. We are made by him in his image and for him. Human life is sacred and set apart from the rest of creation in that way. So setting it apart doesn't mean we don't care about plant life and animal life and stewarding the resources on earth that God has made, but we acknowledge that it is human life that God sets his seal on. It's human life that later on God tells Noah and all of his descendants after him, saying that he, meaning God, will require a reckoning from anyone who would take a human life. It's precious. It's valuable. It is human flesh the word takes on. We just celebrated at Christmas time and dwells among us. It is human flesh that is at the right hand of the Father right now. 
all of scripture testifies to this foundation that human life was made special in the image of God and is to be honored and respected as a result. So this is foundational, and this is what we're returning to once again, to make sure we're beholding every life with the love that our creator has for that life. So our big idea today is just taking that truth, because every life is made in the image of God, and then coming to this conclusion, there are no situations so twisted that they are beyond God's redeeming grace. We don't give up on people and think they're unredeemable because God's grace is bigger than those situations. So to see this from the Bible, we're going to look at a story. And if you have your Bibles, this is a good week to have them. We're not going to have slides up here. <laughs> so if you have your Bible, open the Joshua 9. And we're going to look at a story of one of the outside groups in Scripture that where over time this outside group was incorporated into the people of God. We're going to see how God takes messy stories and messy situations, and he works to show his glory in those situations. And then after looking at this story in the Bible, we'll talk about the messy stories all around us, in our own lives, people we love, and how we can understand God's love for the broken and hurting, his jealousy to protect the vulnerable, and his pleasure in making beauty from ashes. We'll see that treating every life as sacred is a way that we walk in faith, believing that God can redeem any situation, and there is no situation too far for his grace. But before we jump in, let's, let's pray and ask God that he would bless this reading of his word. Father in heaven, you are the creator of everyone and everything, and every life is from you. Please correct in us any misconceptions that we may have about the dignity and worth of souls that you've created calls us to see each life in the same way that you do. Please use your word to mold us into people, the people you desire us to be. Make us like our Savior, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story that we're going to consider is the story of the Gibeonites. So just a little bit of history. Gibeon was an ancient city in Canaan, and its inhabitants were living on the land that God had promised to Abraham back in Genesis. So this is the brief history part. So the descendants of Abraham ended up moving to Egypt during a famine when Joseph was favored in that country. And that favor didn't last, and there was a new pharaoh in Egypt that didn't remember Joseph and made the children of Israel into slaves in Egypt. God rescued his people by his mighty hand through various plagues, and he led Moses and the Israelites out of Egypt and into the wilderness where they wandered for 40 years. And at the end of 40 years, the people reached the end of the promised land. Moses saw it from the mountain, but he wasn't to enter it. He died, and Joshua was called to lead the people into the land. And it's at this point that we're introduced to the Gibeonites, who were a Hivite people living in the land. So just backing up to one of the commands God had promised, um, he gave instructions to Moses about what, how they were to go into the land and what was to take place. And this is what he had said in Exodus 23. He said, I will send, he's going to talk about how he's going to clear the land out for the people. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I'll make all your enemies turn their backs on you. And I will send hornets before you. Can you imagine that? God sending hornets to drive people out. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will drive them out from before you, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. 
And then a little later, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So the Gibeonites at this time knew they had a problem. They knew that this was the marching orders, that God had promised this land to this people. They were tenants living in the promised land that God was going to give as a gift to his people, and they knew that meant they were cursed. Their days there were numbered. So they had to hear about how God had opened up the Jordan River, and the people just marched across into the promised land, where they had seen how God delivered that mighty city of Jericho and its strong walls easily to Joshua and the people of Israel, and how the great city of Ai had been conquered. They knew that God was dispossessing the land as he promised, and that their turn to be conquered or driven out by hornets was coming soon. So that brings us to our narrative. So if you have Joshua chapter 9 open, I'm going to start reading it in verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn-out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, All of their provisions were dry and crumbly. Just going to pause there. Kids, if you picked one word that was repeated over and over again, it was worn out. They took old stuff, worn out stuff, dry and crumbly bread. That's important. So picking up verse 6. And they went to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. And then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? And where do you come from? And they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Ah, king of Bashan, who live in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants, come now, make a covenant with us. Look, here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you, but now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of the provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached the cities, their cities, on the third day. And now their cities were Gibeon, Chepherah, Beroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do. 
let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. And Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you, when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water from the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Well, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So the Gibeonites do something in this text that is described both as cunning and as deceptive. They lie. They change their appearance. They make themselves seem like something that they are not. They make it seem like they live far away from the land. So God had instructed the Israelites to make no covenants with the people of the land, but they were to make peace with the people outside the land. The Gibeonites deceived Joshua and the leaders of Israel by altering their appearance, saying, these clothes were new when we started on this journey. These sacks were new, and now they're burst. And they relied, the bread, this was warm right out of the oven when we started, and now look at it. And the Israelites trust in their own reasoning, They don't consult with the Lord, and they make a hasty treaty with the Gibeonites. So what I want want us to see is that this is just a messy situation. Um, The Old Testament's full of them, so we can go back and be like, can we find a messy situation to talk about? This one is a mess. Israel was to destroy the inhabitants of the land that didn't get chased out by hornets, and they were not to make any covenants with the people. But here they were, making a peace treaty with the Gibeonites, And here's what one commentator had to say about this. Quote, Israel was stuck. They must not break an oath, though it had been wrongly obtained because they had wrongly neglected the wisdom of God. So what to do? Live as faithfully as they could within that twisted situation. End quote. So that the people, they murmur against Joshua and the leaders. Everything was not done by the book. Everything was not done the way it was supposed to be done. And as a result, they were in this mess. So Joshua, realizing that the past cannot be undone, follows the advice of Anna from Frozen 2 and decides to do the next right thing. They honor their vow and they spare the people of Gibeon and instead decide to make them into laborers for the community. So I want to pause here for a moment and just comment that there are situations that you may find yourself in, I might find myself in, that are messy. And that started out with someone, usually yourself, usually me, messing up, being unwise, not obeying God's commands. And when you or I find ourselves in that spot and say, well, here we are. This is where we are. There's many ways we can respond. We can try to hide the past. We can try to minimize it. We can try to rewrite history and act as if it never happened. We can be crippled by it and think that sin that happened 
that because of that, we can't do anything good in the future. But these are all the wrong ways to respond to messes that we make. The best thing we can do is to acknowledge the past. Remember God's love for us that's not based on our performance. It would matter so much more if it was. Um, And make restitution if we need to and do the next right thing. Joshua and the Israelites spare the Gibeonites because of their hasty vow, but they don't stop there. In the next chapter, the other Canaanite peoples, they gather together. They hear that Gibeon has made peace with Israel, and five kings of the land gather their armies, and they're not going to come against Joshua because everyone's losing to Joshua in battle, but they're going to come against this traitor, Gibeon. Um, They gather their troops to make war on Gibeon, and this is what we're told in chapter 10, verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. So this would become what was that famous battle where Joshua commanded the sun to stand still at Gibeon, and it obeyed. But that wasn't the only amazing thing that happened there that day. Let's be amazed at this. What's amazing is the extent that Israel went to help Gibeon. They made a hasty treaty treaty and covenant with the people, and they could have decided to be passive and allow the people of the land to come and clean up their mess, clean up their mistake, they weren't going to attack the people they made a treaty with, but they could stand by while all, all the other people in the land did just that and make their mistake go away. But Joshua and the Israelites do the next right thing yet again, and they do something unexpected. They come to the aid of the Gibeonites, and they risk their own health to stand by them. They surprise their neighbors by doing so. So it's unclear in Joshua in the book itself, if the Gibeonites feared God and in faith cast their lots in with the Israelites like Rahab did when she hid the spies, she had heard what was happening and um, hid the spies, or if the Gibeonites were just trying to be shrewd and were trying to live another day. But what we do know is that they will become part of the nation of Israel. They are not going to be, as Moses warned, people who lead the people of Israel into sin and to worship in other gods. Instead, they are, beco- they are to become servants of the Most High God. Joshua cursed the Gibeonites and their descendants by making them laborers. And if you caught it, they were made to labor in the house of God and to serve at the altar of the Lord. So I don't want to minimize the hard work it is to cut wood um, or to clean blood off of altars and the messy work of sacrifice. And, and to be a servant in that situation. But these outsiders were going to be given an insider view of how God revealed his presence. First in his tabernacle, and then showed his people how he'll deal with their sins through sacrifice. They will be exposed to the God of Israel over and over again, they and their descendants after them, having a view of these things. This was a curse, but it may have also been God's blessing as he makes beauty out of ashes. Uh, This was to be a curse, but think of the psalmist who in Psalm 84 said, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my Lord than dwell in the tents of wickedness. They were 
sent to do work at the altars and in the house of the Lord. That was the forced labor they were to do. So one mistake that we want to make sure we don't make is writing off people as if God is done with them and has no plan for their future. Uh, We often close the book on people when God is still writing the story. He alone knows how it's going to end. So we see from the Gibeonites that God works in the twisted and messy situations in life. And big mistakes are not always the end of the story. So this is the end of the story of the Gibeonites and Joshua, um, how they became servants in Israel, but it's not the last we hear of these spared people. In the concluding chapters of Joshua, when the land was being divided by the tribe, uh, to the tribes, Gibeon and the cities that belong to it around it are listed as cities given to the tribe of Benjamin, giving them a place within the land, and later it would be identified as one of the priest cities meaning that it will be a central place of worship for the people of Israel. Gibeon was where Solomon would go to make sacrifice, and it was there at Gibeon that he would have that famous dream where he would ask God for wisdom. Gibeon is also believed to be the place where the tabernacle was kept until the temple was completed and worship was moved to Jerusalem. The Gibeonites and the city would have been, in some ways, when we look at it at the beginning of how they got incorporated into the people of Israel, they would have been like the black sheep of the family, right? They were outsiders. Maybe there was a messy situation that brought them in. But that's not how they stay. They're being brought into the community, and the shame of the past is being replaced with the pride of being part of community life. So there's one last story about Gibeon in the Old Testament, and it's found in 2 Samuel 21. And I'll read it. You don't need to turn there. You can if you want. But we're told there, there was a famine in the land in the days, in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. It's kind of a surprise when we get to this verse when we're reading through 2 Samuel um, because Scripture doesn't actually tell us the circumstances or when exactly Saul um, put the Gibeonites to death. But we know the king acted unjustly and murdered this ethnic group. And it can be presumed, I think, um, from from the text that the surviving Gibeonites were crying out to God for justice. Their prayers to God were for justice and God caused famine to fall on the land because of their blood guilt of that crime. So the narrative continues and says, so the king, David, called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down with his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And David said, What do you say that I shall do for you? And they said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul and the chosen of the Lord. And King David said, I will give them. So the word atonement is key in this passage. 
says that, what shall I do for you, David asked, and how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The, wor- the word atonement has a lot of significance to it, and in the, the Old Testament has the idea of purifying and making clean those who would make sacrifice. Also, it has the idea of turning away wrath because of guilt um, and reconciling two parties, restoring peace. So David's question is, what can I do, and how can I make atonement that you may not pray for justice and judgment, but pray to bless the heritage of the Lord? And the answer from the Gibeonites is to hang seven of the sons of Saul for the crimes of Saul. So this is another messy situation. So this isn't one of those uh, clean situations like, this is what they do, let's do the same. Um, As we read through it, um, we don't know if the seven sons were involved in the murder of the Gibeonites. Um, They may have been. Some of them would have been very young at the time. If not, then this would have been in violation of the law given by God to Moses, that the children should not be put to death for the sins of the father. This would be yet another twisted and messy situation that's all too common in this world that we live in. So we don't know if these sons were directly guilty, but the seven sons of Saul are hanged, and later on in the chapter we read, and they did all that the king commanded, and after that God responded to the plea for the land. So after the messy business of trying to make atonement and appease the wrath of God for past sins, it said God responded to the plea for the land. He healed the land. And so there's some, some young people here. I'm speaking to everyone, but um, I, I know the young people are, um, catch these things. There's some things that make you uncomfortable in this story. Um, first, we see that those who are paying the penalty, so to speak, are not necessarily those who committed the crime. The text doesn't tell us, but it could be that the innocent are killed to pay for the crimes of the guilty, and that can unsettle us. There's something not fair about that. And second, there's an attempt to make up for wrongs of the past with what looks like a present wrong. So there's wisdom in the saying that says two wrongs don't make a right. Something wrong happened, let's make up for it by doing the next wrong. Seems to be the opposite of do the next right thing. Um, And the ambiguity of the text doesn't make it clear that this is even what God wanted David to do. There is something uncomfortable about the passage. Um, I can't make it really comfortable for you, but I can submit that this is a broken picture of atonement, of trying to make peace, and we can use it to point to the real sacrifice that made peace with God. So let's, let's consider that. Let's see how these broken things point to Jesus. Jesus was the innocent one, thinking about innocence, innocent people dying for the guilt of others, the only innocent one who lived a life of perfect obedience to God, and he was unjustly killed, the innocent being executed for the crimes he did not commit. And moreover, even though two wrongs don't make a right, we see that the greatest good in history of the world came from the wrong treatment of Jesus, of the execution of the Son of God. Peter tells us, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? So that he might bring us to God. Jesus was the righteous one who was unrighteously killed by being hanged on a tree outside the city gates and to turn away the wrath of God on the guilty by making atonement for them. 
One of the mistakes we can make when reading the Old Testament is we can think that the atonement made in this sense of killing the sons of Saul was wrong, but it would have been okay if silver and gold were given to the Gibeonites instead, or animals were sacrificed. The mistake we make is believing that anything could have atoned for sin that could be done by the king or the people or anyone else. Indeed, everyone, all the stories we could read, everyone is in messy states of being guilty sinners deserving wrath with no way to be reconciled with God. And all of these attempts fall short, but point us to Jesus who would be the one who would make peace with God between God and man. Peter tells us, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So if there's nothing else you remember from the sermon today, please remember that Jesus is the lamb without spot or blemish who laid down his life to give eternal life to anyone who would believe in him. The gift of eternal life is offered to sinners in messy situations who cannot clean up those situations, cannot make atonement for those situations on their own, and cannot make their own peace with God for their sins. And that Jesus died, the the just for the unjust, to bring sinners like that, like us, like people in messy situations, to God. So looking back at the Gibeonites, there's one final mention of them. It's like I keep saying one more. (laughs) One final mention, just giving you a a big, the whole thread of the Gibeonites through the Old Testament. One final passage I want to call our attention to, and it is short and easy to pass over. It's from Nehemiah, when those who are going back to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem are being listed. A Gibeonite leader and the Gibeonites are mentioned and listed as those who returned and were working to rebuild the wall. The Gibeonites by this point had been transformed from outsiders with a shameful past to being some of the faithful who were coming back to rebuild. They were incorporated into the people of Israel and were listed among them. They had become part of the people of God, and we see in them how God can write a story that is completely different from what we would expect at the beginning based on the mistakes that we could zero in on and just focus on. So church, I would like you to see as we talk about this foundational truth of every human life being sacred, that God meets people in their messes and redeems them by his grace. And since God does this, then we as his representatives need to view people not according to the worst things they have done, but according to the Father's love for them in Christ Jesus. So how do we respond to this? How do we acknowledge that all life is in the image of God and because of that, no situations are so twisted that they're beyond God's redeeming grace? How do we respond to that and how we live? So I I have four things. One, let's be comfortable getting into hard places with people, into uncomfortable situations. Life can be hard, and it's said that when the hard times come, you really get to know who your friends are. Um, It can be said of the prodigal son that he had lots of friends, until he had no money, and then he had no friends. Church, I walked us through an unsettling passage of scripture today. The text of Saul killing the Gibeonites and David hanging the sons of Saul is not something that gets preached on often. Um, (laughs) There are elements that are hard to make fit with our Christian sensibilities. 
But you know what? While in that passage is something that when we're doing our Bible reading plan, we might read through quickly, like, I'm not sure, and just keep moving. God was in that situation. Um, and we can, we can look at the broken things and see who Jesus really is. God is in the hard places. David said in Psalm 139, if I ascend into the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the deep, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. God is in the hard places and he is light in those places. And as his hands and feet, we need to be comfortable being with people in tough situations. So some just practical things. We celebrate life when we weep with those who weep at the loss of life. We are with people. It's sometimes hard to be with people who are grieving. You don't know what to say. You don't know what to do. You feel uncomfortable. Get comfortable getting into hard places with people. We celebrate life when we rejoice in a new but unexpected life. Uh, we don't, one of the things we sometimes talk about on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday is we zero in on abortion um, and the taking of human life before babies are born. Well, we celebrate life, every baby that is conceived. We, we can celebrate. We can be there for people. They can think of this as a place where people, they, they can come and say, I made a mess and I don't know what to do and people won't say shame on you. But they'll celebrate that life with them and be there with them. We honor the image of God in people when we help them find a job as they try to re-enter society after incarceration. When people mess up and need to own up to their sin and make restitution, we sit with them so they don't have to do it alone, even if we don't know the right thing for them to do or what's going to happen next. Because us just being there with them is a testimony about God who never leaves us or forsakes us. And when we go to places like Planned Parenthood and we ask people to stop and talk with us and plead with them to reconsider before they go inside, it's uncomfortable. They're trying to avoid you, but you're trying to talk to them, but it's because you know you have the words of life if only they would listen. Being comfortable going into uncomfortable situations. So that's the first thing. Second, we need to be people who do the next right thing. So one of the great deceptions of the deceiver is telling us about our sin, telling us all about it, that because of our sin, God is ashamed of us and has no use for us anymore. How many Christians listened to this lie and kept quiet and have not told others the gospel because they think they're a vessel not worthy enough to share what, such good news? When in fact, one of the greatest testimonies about how good the news is is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I'm chief. Our unworthiness shows the extent of his grace. When we're silent about our unworthiness, people think the only perfect, only perfect people and good people receive God's grace. We don't tell the true story. So doing the next right thing, when you're doing the next right thing in any of these situations we find ourselves in means getting up, repenting of sin, owning our brokenness, making anything right that we can, and praying that God would use us once again. He will. And that opportunity to do the next right thing, to do good, will come soon enough. So be comfortable in uncomfortable situations. Get into the hard places. Do the next right thing. Surprise people by doing good. It surprised me that Joshua and the Israelites um, 
fought to protect the people that had just deceived them. It is a testimony to who God is when we do good because every life is made in the image of God and people are expecting us to do the opposite. I don't know why people have such misperceptions about Christians. Um, They think a lot of things that Christian people are like this or like that. They might be surprised that Christians in Northeast Philly are welcoming Muslim refugees to their city and trying to provide for those families who have been uprooted and living through chaotic and frightful circumstances. They expect that they would be opposed to people of different religions and unwelcoming to strangers when the Bible teaches us the opposite, to welcome the stranger, to remind, and reminds us that we were strangers, we were outsiders who were brought in. So if you can make a list of all the ways people get you wrong and they have misconceptions, well, that's a list of ways you could surprise them um, by doing doing good, um, and going against what they think you'll do. So if your neighbors only think you care about babies in the womb, then show the truth by fostering children or supporting organizations that support um, young families. If your coworkers think you'll boycott a baby shower for a lesbian in the office, then surprise them by giving a gift. The point of this is not some type of reverse psychology. It is letting your actions speak for you by showing that every life is valuable with your actions as well as your words. And then fourth, hope in God who is still writing this story. This goes for yourself and it goes for other people you might think of. Don't believe that God is done with you and don't believe there is no hope for others. We have no idea how God is working all things together, but we trust in him. He is the one that makes beauty out of messes, and we can trust in him for that. And on that point, we trust in Jesus, who is our only hope in life and death, and is the one that brought the greatest good from the worst of all circumstances. So let's pray to him. Father, we thank you for our lives. Thank you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And even though it is inconceivable at times to our own minds, thank you that because of Jesus, you love us as your own children. Please help us to love others as you do. Help us as we go from here to see the value of every human life like you do and then live in ways to honor and love that image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.